0: I really think that the power of the myths is that they tell us over and over and over, it was ever thus, it was ever thus. People have always gone through unwanted, radical change. You can't be a human being and go through your whole life without it. It's not possible. But the change produces and creates things. It's how the world is made, that death is necessary to life. That's over and over and over the statement of these myths.
1: That was visionary director, Mary Zimmerman, talking about her play, Metamorphosis. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Mary Zimmerman is an acclaimed director, known throughout the theater world for her visually arresting and innovative work. She rises to the challenge of staging work that seems impossible and shows us how it can be done. For example, in her adaptation of Ovid's Metamorphosis, she places the action of the play in a giant pool that occupies most of the stage. There, the gods and mortals interact with the water containing and shaping the stories that unfold. With lyrical storytelling and dazzling staging of works like The Odyssey, The Arabian Nights, and The Notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, she has consistently demonstrated her ability to make the imaginative leap from page to stage, look effortless. Mary Zimmerman has earned national and international recognition. She's received numerous awards, including the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Fellowship. She's received more than 20 Joseph Jefferson Awards for her creative work in the Chicago area and the 2002 Tony Award for Best Direction for her most famous work, Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is currently playing at Washington, D.C.'s Arena Stage, which gave me the opportunity to speak with Mary Zimmerman. Aside from being a director who's usually working on multiple projects, Mary is also a full-time professor of performance studies at Northwestern University. I wondered how well she managed to juggle what's essentially two careers.
0: Not very well. (laughs) I feel like I'm always feeling guilty towards one or another side of my life feeling like I'm sort of tearing away from a student coming down the hall towards rehearsal, or sort of vice versa, tearing away from rehearsal back to school. On the other hand, without doubt, the two have fed each other. And in fact, Metamorphoses was started at school. It was a school play. And it wasn't a workshop or anything. It was a full production. It was called Six Myths at the time. And you know, then it's gone on through a whole bunch of theaters and end up on Broadway, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a school play. I was a professor directing students. I believe it was 1996, and then we did it two years later at the Looking Glass Theater Company. That was its first professional production in 1998 here in Chicago. And it was meant to run about five weeks, and it ran eight months. At that time, we were an itinerant theater company. You know, We didn't have a regular season where the next show was coming in and the space was available so it just kept it just kept running and then it went off in the next two or three years to i think three regional theaters and then it went to second stage in new york and then it went on to circle in the square in new york well i think we should
1: explain that metamorphosis has a large pool as the physical and also thematic centerpiece of the stage yes did a pool figure in the original 1996 production as well?
0: The pool figured in with the conception of the show. I did not have the idea to do, you know, let's do some Greek myths. Mm, how should we do it? It was, I'm going to do Greek myths in water. I had originally wanted to stage the Odyssey in water, I'd staged it on dry land, but I'd always wanted to stage it on water. And then I was going to do something at school, and I thought, you know what? I'll just audition this idea, and I'll just do this little show with my students. I'll just make a little show with Greek myths. It's the same maritime culture. The Odyssey is very maritime, obviously. And it has everything to do with the idea of change and transformation that all of these myths are about and creation, which all of these myths are about. And so I'll just try, I'll just try that. And then it just took over. It became its own thing. It was so sort of obviously successful, the marriage between the idea of the water and the content of the stories. And also, because of the way I make shows, I don't write a play in advance.
1: Well, when do you write the play?
0: I only start writing once we're in production, once we're in rehearsal. The set's already designed, it's already cast, and I go in with no script, And I write every night in the small hours of the night before the next rehearsal. I'm not improvising with the actors. It's the same act as playwriting, except its time frame is superimposed on top of the time frame of rehearsal. And this is how I've done every show I've ever done except one.
1: It's such a short time frame. Why do you create the play this way?
0: I do it that way so that there's a very strong marriage between the environment of the show the physical production and how it's imagined, and the script. The script isn't the agent of design. It's responding to design. It's most true in Metamorphoses. Since I knew I was doing it in water, I picked myths that had something to do with the water or could be amplified by the water or had something to be brought out by the water that could use the water, either in sort of literal ways as the ocean or as a symbol of overwhelming grief or sexuality, or a transformative property, uh, the way water is used cross-culturally that way. The script was made in the shadow of the set, which is the opposite of the conventional way when you start with with an extant script, you know, you start with a Shakespeare play, you see what the script demands and the set tries to provide it, although it's often reconceptualized and inflected in interesting ways. But in this case, the setting is, is informing, as are the performers. I write for them, for their particular personalities, for what they're good at. If they can sing, I do a song. If they're very funny, I make sure they get to be very funny. It's made for the circumstances that are actually already there and happening. Now, mind you, everything I do is based on a text. It's based on a story. I'm not going in making up a plot. Do you know what I mean? Though often I have to figure out a plot and make it work on stage or work in two hours or whatever. But it's, it's not a free fall. I don't just cast some people and say, let's make up a story. How do you cast the actors that you work with? Well, I have to write some false audition. They're called sides, little scenes, which may or may not end up in the show. They read just like they would for Hamlet or anything else. But then I have these little group callbacks where I have them in groups of 8 to 10 come in the room, and I just go through a series of really silly things with them, physical things, that I always feel every time I do it, okay, that's the last time I'm ever doing that. I'm too old and it's too stupid. But actually, it's so revelatory and it's so helpful. But mostly it's just to get them off their guard and to see what they're like in the room. It's not a very competitive environment. It's sort of hilarious, the things that we do, just to get them to relax. And then after that, they actually read again, have a proper what's called a callback, read a second time. But I must say that in every show I do, I have to have at least one person, and really usually I have about two-thirds persons that have worked with me in this way before. And because here in Chicago I work really exclusively with the Looking Glass Theater Company, which I'm a member of, or at the Goodman Theater, which doesn't have a standing acting company, but is here in Chicago. I've been working with the same people over and over, and I call them my old goats, because I always heard that that racehorse Seabiscuit, (laughs) to be less nervous, needed this old goat in the stable with him. The new actors, who've never done this process with me before, and are often very, very game. They wouldn't be there if they weren't, but they're very, very nervous, too. They don't know what's going to happen or what they're going to end up saying, you know, or anything having the presence of people who've been through this with me, now some of them, 12 or 15 different productions, is quite calming. They can go out for a drink afterwards and say, you know, is there something? And they they can get reassured. You know, and just the energy of the people who've done it with me is so much calmer and normal, and it reassures them. There's not a lot of playing around or messing around. I think some people coming into the process or who've heard about my process think that it's very carefree and playful and let's roll around on the floor. It's not at all. I make a play in four weeks, which is the time you're given to rehearse any play, except I'm writing at the same time. There's no time for that. In fact, I remember once coming in and shoving pages into people's hands and then starting to stage them immediately, and one of the actors said, Mary, can we read this through first? (laughs) I didn't even let them read through the three pages. Whereas, like, normally when you're doing a Shakespeare play, it might be two weeks with some directors before you stand up from the table. You know, you're just sitting there studying, talking, talking, talking. But I feel like I'm trying to tell a story through image just as much as I am through words. And so I'm always leaning into that. And I often pick an episode or a chapter or a part of a poem or whatever it is because I know how to stage it, because I have an idea how to embody it. Initially, rehearsals can be very short—an hour, an hour and a half—and the time I need in between rehearsals is long. And then those ratios shift; you know, they cross each other through the course of the course of rehearsals. So the rehearsals get longer and longer as there's more material. I have less and less time in between, but there's less and less to accomplish as, as well.
1: Metamorphosis happened to open in New York City right after nine eleven
0: yes, we were in New York rehearsing for Second Stage, and our first preview was September 16th, 2001 in New York. And you hear from school on the term catharsis as a theoretical construct, and you don't quite know if you've experienced it or if you believe it. But twice in my life, I've felt it. You know, I believe catharsis is defined as the Purging of pity and terror through identification with the character of the the story. And there were certain lines, certain events that happened in Metamorphoses that were so piercingly immediate that I was sort of shaking, you know, in the back row, like, here we go, like what's gonna happen when they say these lines. Because the play starts on a fairly light or neutral sort of note, but the first full story that is told. Alcyon and Saix. You know, there's a, a man and wife who love each other very much, and on a perfectly sunny day, he goes essentially off to work. He wants to go consult in a far-off oracle. And the wife is a little apprehensive. She doesn't want him to go. But then he's sailing along, and out of the blue sky, out of nothing, disaster, a storm, and within moments, he's, he's killed. But then the really harrowing thing is that as he's drowning, he prays to the god just one thing— that his wife find his body and then we cut to her and she's sleeping on the shore so she'll see his boat return as soon as possible and she doesn't know what's happened of course and so the gods take pity on her because she's waiting and waiting and send a dream of her husband down to her in his form played by the actor who plays her husband of course and they have this encounter in the water where he tells her I'm dead and you you have to let it go so You know, the difference in being in New York on 9-11 and anywhere else in the world, and I I think anyone would tell you this or if you were there yourself, is the presence of the search was all around. It was everywhere, the search. And the, the hope against hope, the hope against all knowing the truth that someone was going to walk back in the door and everywhere, everywhere, have you seen, have you seen, have you seen and overhearing conversations on the street and being asked on the street and the little memorials, and soon the search posters turned to memorials and all of that. So that was so in the air. But I think the reason that the play works towards being comforting, even though it presents tragedy, and you know this is what the philosophers and Aristotle are trying to explain, there's something, I don't know how to say this, when you watch a show, you're both inside it and outside it. Inside it, you're feeling it, you're, you're with it, you're experiencing that pity and terror. But there's this outside part that knows that this is a repetitive act and that it is going to happen again and again. And then I think that's triply enforced when it's an ancient text. And you know that the story has been told for 5,000 years. And it, it, it makes you back up the lens of your life it pulls you back from the tumult of the wave that you're in of the surf that you're in in your life to see that the, that there's the whole ocean carrying every wave to shore and then i think for me to stretch that idea even a little bit more the curtain call is a symbol of the resurrection and that's why It's always only young people who deny an audience member a curtain call or are grim during the curtain call because they want to show how serious they are and how serious everything is. (laughs) The smiling and the reappearance of everyone after the trauma, after the fiction, to show that the trauma was passing, was a fiction, and the greeting and acknowledging of, of the audience is such a kind of reunion, a kind of ecstatic reunion, and... I think that works on a very deep level with audiences. I also think that that pity and terror and all that, it's a communal experience. You are in a group of people who, without words, because audiences are very polite and very silent and sit in the dark and face one direction and sort of do as they're told a little bit. And in exchange for that, they're offered an experience that's very immediate and vivid and hopefully very funny and entertaining and important in some way or provides ideas, moves them. But then there's a release of that at the end where we're suddenly in the same in the same room together. But aside from all of that kind of fancy talk about that, I really think that the power of the myths is that they tell us over and over and over, it was ever thus, it was ever thus. People have always gone through unwanted, radical change. You can't be a human being and go through your whole life without it. It's not possible. But the change produces and creates things. It's how the world is made, that death is necessary to life. That's over and over and over the statement of these myths. But I also feel that every single play you go and see or acts of representation always affirm life because someone or some group of people has studied it and practiced and rehearsed for you to give you this little simulacrum of life, of nature. And that's an act of devotion. That's a, that's a worshipful act.
1: As we said, metamorphosis is based on Ovid's stories. And you spoke about how you selected the stories that you adapted based on the imagery you could imagine and also on the cast you were working with. But what drew you to Ovid's stories to begin with?
0: When I was a child, after I'd consumed every possible fairy tale book that I could, I turned to my mother's library and she had Edith Hamilton's mythology sitting there. And I looked at those little pen and ink drawings, which anyone who knows that book I'm sure remembers. And they just held me. And myths felt to me like somehow serious and dangerous fairy tales, like real fairy tales. Like I, I sensed the psychological content and the adult content when I was, was very little. And there was another experience. Both my parents were professors and we lived for a time in, in England. And I had a teacher, I was in first grade, who read us the Odyssey, which I'm sure it was in a children's version uh, every afternoon, late in the afternoon. and. She showed us pictures based on the Odyssey. And I mean, I was just so taken by that thing. And I've theorized it sometimes and said, you know, I was a, an American girl far from home myself on an island. But I don't really think that's it. I think it was all of the enchantment and the adventure. You know, it was just so, so gripping. And all my life, I've lived with one foot in that fantastical realm of voyages and adventures and transformations and years-long waitings to return or lost loves and all that. I so love that artful, fantastical, and entertaining world that I have to sort of make it three-dimensional for myself to inhabit. All of my joys in rehearsal and pre-production, I'm not, I know this is so strange, I don't feel like a theater person. I don't like opening nights. I hate dressing up. I don't like the competitive feeling in theater sometimes. I don't like any of that. I don't like any of that. What I really like is rehearsal, is figuring out how to stage something that's impossible. I'm really drawn to staging things that are impossible to stage in a theater. Film can do it extremely well. Novels can draw anything in the world. You can say anything in the world and make that image. But the theater is so weighted in reality. It so is what it is that I love trying to figure out how to make that image happen. A storm at sea or someone turning into a bird or people flying or a parade of camels or any number of things. That's just the catnip to me. And most of my solutions are are super easy and really not much more sophisticated or as sophisticated as a child in the backyard. You know, Willa Cather, I'm from Nebraska, so I'm a Cather fan, said I'll never be the artist I was as a child. And I know exactly what she means, but I try to be. I'd like briefly to
1: talk about Eros and Psyche, which mm-hmm. doesn't come from Ovid, and yes. why
0: you chose to include that. Yes. I wanted to do Eros and Psyche even at school, but I couldn't figure out how to do it because it really is filled with plot. There's really a lot of action and a lot of incident, and if I were to sort of fully embody every moment of it... It would be disproportionately large for the show. So it's the one difference, or one of a couple big differences, between the original school show and then the form the show's in now, was the addition of Arrows and Psyche, because I hit upon the idea, oh, I can just have people talking about it, and I can concentrate on the one thing that I want to get to, which is based on that Edith Hamilton book line drawing of Psyche pulling the curtain aside and looking at him, And Psyche was forbidden to see Eros. Yes. Even though they could be lovers. Yes. (laughs) Yes, they've been lovers in the dark, etc. But she is not supposed to look at him. And then, of course, her curiosity and also her sisters tell her, well, he's a monster, it's a monster you're married to. So she feels she has to look at him. Something about that moment is so galvanizing to me. And this idea in the myth, Psyche means, the word psyche means the soul. Why is it forbidden for the soul to look directly on love? I I don't even know what that means. I've been doing this show for however many years and off and on, and the mystery of it still holds me. There's something about it that feels very psychologically weighted and important and true, but I don't think I know the end of it. I don't think I do. But... I was galvanized by that image as a child, just galvanized by it. And I wanted to do it. I wanted to embody it. I wanted to see it embodied. And I hit upon the idea, I'll have two people talking about what happened, and it sort of climaxes at the moment where she's there at the, this little floating raft looking down at this winged, naked figure of Eros. Something about that is perpetually sad and beautiful and loving. I don't know. I just it just has always held me. So that's why I went for I think I can say on a surface level one of the things that myth is saying is that the appearance of things is deceptive and the appearance of things in a way might actually prevent love. That when you're really seeing with love, you're seeing through through surface. It was so moving and so beautiful. And a lot of the ideas about Eros in there, I have to credit very loudly James Hillman and an essay of his in a collection called Blue Fire about Eros. Those ideas, that explanation of Eros is is from him. I'm like a little magpie, you know, and I go towards these little texts I love. Other shows of mine are much more my own idiom, but this is an early show, and I must give credit to all of these thinkers and writers about these myths um, before me. I I think of myself as primarily a director, more than a writer. I'm an adapter, and I must give credit always to these really brilliant people who have enlightened my thinking for 20, 30 years about literary texts.
1: As you say, there's a reality to theater, and there's a practicality to it, too. What special challenges are there to having actors perform in water
0: And having to do these quick changes, often when they're sopping wet. It is massive. I mean, the theater has this material reality. Things are actually heavy. You know, if you want to bring something on stage, it's actually heavy. And that's true in all shows, all live production. But when you add, I don't know how many gallons of water it is, this gigantic pool of water... You're adding, you know, an exponential level of difficulty for just us little theater folk. You know, we're not like giant Las Vegas spectacle folk. We're just little theater folk. And you're right. Well, let me put it this way. Since the first time we did in 1996, it's traveled such a distance in how we manage the backstage and what we know about the backstage The show was hellish to perform in the early days. We didn't have doubles of costumes, so they were pulling on wet clothes that they'd worn earlier in the evening that were clammy and and cold. We didn't understand how to keep things heated backstage initially. We didn't know how to keep the water clean and as warm as we now do and all the methods and procedures for that. I mean, the pool is... It's tended during the day by a crew a little bit, and it's just monitored relentlessly for its pH content and its heat. And we've just figured out all these methods. Pool remains covered all day. It has a motor running that's heating and filtering it, and then we pull that cover off literally 10 seconds before we open the door for the house to come in because from that moment on, we have to cut the motor because it's noisy. From that moment on, the pool is losing heat. We now have systems in place b- by its start so warm that it's absolutely fine through the end of the show. But in the early days, we just didn't have that powerful of a heater, and so we didn't know what we were doing, and it was just hell by the end of the show, how cold they were. Imagine that in your acting. <laughs> you know. And then backstage we have these walkways which are made of this rubber matting that sort of drains water away, can get very slippery. The clothes... You know, but you can't just use any material that you'd like to build the costumes for metamorphoses. It can't be anything dyed. It'll just bleach out. It, it obviously has to be clothing that, that you can put in the put in water, <laughs> which is really limiting, and that you can wash nightly and twice on show days and not just fall apart. And actually, a lot of Materials have advanced since we started this show that has given us a wider range of things we can use. You know, it's not not your mother's polyester anymore, and there's, like, bamboo fabric and things like that that we can use. I have to also ask you about the opening of
1: Arabian Nights. I, I saw it again at Arena Stage, uh-huh. Theater in the Round. Yes. And you come in and you sit down and yes. you see this bumpy white canvas Mm -hmm. that's taking up almost the full stage Mm -hmm. and the way it begins is the canvas is ripped off and there are all these carpets rolled up and it becomes this choreography of unrolling the carpets yes that had to be timed perfectly, but it was amazing.
0: Thank you so much. Yes, there was endless pillow tossing and lamps lowering and, and coordination. And you're right, it takes a ton of rehearsal. But if I may say, if when we first did Arabian Nights, which is even older than Metamorphoses, that show, when the audience came in, it's true that the carpets were rolled up in the center, but there was no white tarp over it and no bare bulb hanging down. When we returned to the show, it was post two Gulf Wars, and I felt that the audience could not walk into a house that was already in this romantic version of old Arabi. You know what I mean? Like the fantasy, which is Arabian nights. It definitely, even for Arab people, has that quality, of course. It's enchanted. But I wanted a starker beginning, and I wanted the act of making us go to that enchanted place to be deliberate and visible, so that we see it is a creative, fictional place. It's not the contemporary geopolitical situation. It's a created, fantastical place. And I wanted to name that and own that. So hence, this bare light bulb that's hanging over And the first thing that happens is two drummers come on, and one of them puts one of those beautiful filigreed lamps around the contemporary light bulb. And then they strike their drums and that thing raises up and other lanterns lower. And we make that colorful world. But what you first come into is a gray and sort of white world, an empty and barren world. So that we see that it's an act of construction. I don't want people thinking that we can mistake that fantasy world for the real world. I wanted to show it being, being constructed as a construct of human imagination. Why do you think theater has the
1: power? to transform people?
0: Well, it might be a kind of sympathetic response in that the actors are transforming themselves into other characters in order to tell stories every night. Maybe that's it. I know it transforms for a while. I don't know if it's permanent or if it has to keep reiterating itself. And I do think you're talking about personal transformation. You know, I think works of art, stories, cultivate empathy. I'll leave it at that. You identify with characters, with people different from you, and it's a practice of empathy. I think it cultivates empathy. And I'm a little worried that if reading is lost or going to plays, which is a sustained kind of concentration and length of time with character, with story, that that empathetic quality may be lost or not as enriched as it can and should be.
1: Yes. Aside from empathy, I think, Both reading and theater also demands an imaginative leap.
0: Yes, you're right. It's an agreement. We're going to agree to fall into this. And especially reading, you know, what's in front of you are little symbols of black ink on a white piece of paper. But you step through that surface. And, you know, every child, I think, when they understand that this sentence isn't just a sentence that it, it's a magic carpet to somewhere else is a very important moment. Rudyard Kipling, who I'm working with now, writes about that in his autobiography, the moment that he understood that this was a door, not a sentence, but a, a door into somewhere else and how reading saved his life and childhood. And I, I think it functions that way for a lot of people. Very briefly, in closing, what are you working on now? Well, I guess I've been talking around it. I'm working on a project, The Jungle Book, which uses the music and songs from the Disney movie, and then also is trying to inflect it with a little bit more of Kipling, although Kipling and the Disney movie are so far apart that it's a bit difficult. And that's produced at the Goodman Theater here in Chicago. It's my next project. I go into rehearsal end of April and be over the summer. Thank you, for Thank Mary you Zimmerman. so much. Thank I you very much. I appreciate it. Thank
1: you. You're welcome. That was director Mary Zimmerman talking about her play, Metamorphosis. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt of Some Are More Equal from the album Oil, composed and performed by Hans Teuber and Paul Rucker. Music is available for download at paulrucker.com. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, writer M. Evelina Galang. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.